0: previously on Finding Tammy Joe, I assigned investigators to then begin driving and stopping at every restaurant.
1: Why would you buy somebody dinner and then kill them 25 minutes later? It didn't make any sense.
2: I don't know if I felt a responsibility to her, but you wanted to tell her story. As I said, identifying her is just one step somebody still has to be charged with her murder.
0: What were you doing in New York when you were there? Robbing, breaking in and killing.
2: Those are the voices of former Livingston County Sheriff John York and serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. In 1984, York traveled to a Texas prison to try to answer one question. Could Lucas have killed the teenager found in the Caledonia cornfield five years earlier?
0: Henry Lee Lucas, who was a serial killer from Waco, Texas, who had told Sergeant Bobby Prince of the Texas Rangers that he had killed Jane Dole.
2: Henry Lee Lucas didn't help York much, but York's willingness to go to Texas to question the serial killer was typical of the lawman's relentlessness. York could not let the mystery of the murdered girl just go unanswered. I'm Gary Craig with The Democrat and Chronicle, and this is the third of our Finding Tammy Joe podcasts. I'm joined by my reporting partner, Veronica Volk, with WXXI.
1: You can't really tell the story of Callie Doe without talking a lot about John York. He was initially the lead investigator with the case, and he stayed that way after he became Livingston County Sheriff in 1989. No one worked harder to find out who Callie Doe was or who killed her.
0: This we began in Livingston County on the 10th of November 1979, and for us it continued for 36 years. You know, you like to take pride in your work. You like to think you're going to get resolved. You think you're going to give justice to every victim. It's not realistic, but you believe that. And I think our personal belief was she has a right to better. Just to
2: make sure I'm clear, what do you mean by that?
0: To have somebody shoot her. Dump her roadside. She deserved better.
1: John York had no idea when he went into that Caledonia cornfield on a gray November 1979 day that he was about to become the lead investigator in a case that would preoccupy him for years. He thought he would find out who the girl was who'd been shot twice and left dead. And from there, investigators would find her killer. It would be that easy, or so York thought.
0: Generally, within a week, somebody's called, a friend, a family member, somebody's reported her missing. Somebody's going to lodge the missing person after the week went by, the month went by, the years.
1: And the more years passed, the more York wanted answers.
0: You know, it was the only homicide we had not solved. We had solved many, many, many other homicides subsequent, but it was one that remained unsolved and it becomes very personal.
1: Here's an example of just how personal it got. The girl was wearing a jacket when she was found, a bright red jacket, a little oversized for her. And York became obsessed with this jacket. He spent weeks trying to find the manufacturer, sending it to the FBI. He wrote letters to every secretary of state in the country. He finally got a response from Delaware, which led him to this mushroom farmer in California.
0: Uh, When I called him, he was very concerned that I might have been from the IRS, was very reluctant to talk to me. And Back in 1979, as you know, to even have a fax machine in a sheriff's office was a luxury. So I actually uh, was able to get a fax machine, send him a correspondence identifying who I was. He then called me on his own uh, personal phone, said to me, you're not going to like what I'm going to tell you. And I said, I haven't liked anything about this case. He said uh, he made several thousand of those coats. He was a vice president of a major car manufacturer. And uh, after he manufactured those coats. He sold them to auto sport companies, car dealers, uh, manufacturers, things like that, as a uh, promotional item.
1: The jacket was so widely distributed that it turned out to be a dead end. And like so many of the details in this case, it still hasn't connected the girl who wore it to her killer, at least not yet. But York still remained relentless.
2: York took the story national. He used the autopsy photos and artist renderings to reach out to police across the country. He badgered
0: cops, asking them to check into the reports of runaways. I don't like to talk about other police departments negatively, uh, but the realism of police work is you get so overwhelmed by so many cases. Sometimes you don't take each one personally. Well, I took this personal, and some of the major metropolitan areas wouldn't even look And they said they have so many thousands of runaways, and I said it made no difference. And then we found some of the major metropolitan areas purged some of their cases. I had to circumvent that, go to a state agency to retrieve the data that they purged.
2: Based on what he knew, York believed the girl may have been a hitchhiker. Pollen found in her clothes was tested and clearly came from warm weather climates in the south or maybe the west, And the girl obviously had been somewhere warm before she was killed. The first indicator
0: to me was she had a halter top tan. So you knew you didn't wear a halter top in the northeast in November and get a suntan. So we always felt it's most likely Florida, Arizona.
1: You have to remember, in the late 1970s, hitchhiking was fairly common, and sadly, Hitchhikers could be vulnerable targets for predators. That's why York decided he had to consider that Callie Doe had been killed by the worst of the worst, a serial killer. York decided he wanted to talk to some convicted serial killers who had similar MOs. The problem was that so many of them were notoriously dishonest. They took credit for killings they had nothing to do with.
0: So we had sent a lot of information to a lot of police agencies that was pertinent information of the case, but it took such national attention at the time. So many TV shows, people knew, and sometimes killers take advantage of that and try to take credit for crimes that we know they didn't do or couldn't have done.
1: One of those men was Henry Lee Lucas.
0: I went to uh, Waco, Texas. And uh, interviewed Henry Lee Lucas, who was a master of can't, recant, I did it, I didn't do it.
1: Here again is York interviewing Lucas. And you can't see this, but while they're in the cell and Lucas is talking about his murders, he sits calmly, chain smoking cigarettes, unfazed.
0: Uh, do you recall any murders right up around uh, Rochester, Buffalo, in that area? Well, I've got one that uh, a girl I shot up in here so That was with, uh, I think, either 22 or 30 down the bridge. Not was, right? That was in a cornfield
1: up there. But Lucas was known as a serial liar as well as a serial killer. He claimed to have committed dozens of killings that he didn't. And as York asks him specific questions about the Caledonia killing... Lucas proves that he doesn't know all the details of the crime.
0: We're, we have to be sure. I'm sure you understand. Oh, I know that. And, you know. So let's. Hope. We're trying to find out any details you could tell us, or do you remember anything about the girl specifically? Do you recall um, anything she had on, as far as jewelry, or well, she did have a necklace on at one time. I don't know whether she ever took it off. Do you remember what kind of necklace? It was a little gold necklace with, of uh, what I call a teardrop on
1: the bottom. The girl did have a piece of distinctive jewelry, but not what Lucas described. Instead, she had a two-piece locket keychain. One piece was in the shape of a heart, inscribed with "He who holds the key can open my heart." The second piece was a key that fit snugly within. There were other details that Lucas didn't get quite right, like the color of the girl's red jacket. Lucas told York he was with another serial killer when he committed the murder, Otis Toole. York decided he had to interview Toole, who was imprisoned in Florida at the time.
0: Otis Toole told me almost the exact same story that Henry Lee Lucas told me. The prison authorities and the Texas Rangers told me Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole had no way of talking, communicating with each other. But Otis Toole knew that Henry Lee Lucas told me he shot her with a thirty eight caliber or twenty two, he couldn't remember which. Now Otis Toole could have said he shot her, but he didn't. He said Henry did. He said they picked her up in a park in Philadelphia, said the reason they shot her is she talked too much. A lot of that information, they really should not have known, but we never, certainly, officially ever closed the investigation because we couldn't confirm what they said.
2: There was another serial killer who intrigued York. Christopher Wilder was a race car driver from Australia. He'd entice young women to travel the United States with him by promising them a career in modeling. In the early 1980s, Wilder went on a brutal killing spree. He murdered eight women. During that time, he stabbed and beat a 15-year-old girl, leaving her for dead. But she survived, and she went to police. At that time, York just happened to be in Florida, interviewing Otis Toole. York got word that Christopher Wilder apparently knew his way around western New York. The teenager whom Wilder had left for dead? She'd been dumped in Yates County only 60 miles from Caledonia and the cornfield where Cali Doe had been found.
0: While I'm interviewing Otis Toole on death row in Stark, Florida, my prime suspect, Chris Wilder, comes to Yates County, New York, and dumps another abducted victim about the age of our girl. He went to New Hampshire, to the border, and was going around this little convenience store and to get some gas, and a very alert New Hampshire trooper sees the vehicle that we everybody's got the bulletin on. And he pulls around back the store, and he parks his vehicle and he comes out and comes around the front of the store. Christopher Wilder bolts from the store, runs out, jumps in his car. The trooper jumps right on top of him, he takes a three fifty seven, shoots himself right twice through the chest, shot the trooper right through his chest. Um, I was just begging, tell me the gun, figuring that was our gun. It wasn't.
2: Whatever York could do to solve the Cali-Doe case, he did it. He talked to serial killers, men like Otis Toole and Henry Lee Lucas. He talked to cops across the country. He made sure every publication or website that focused on missing people included information about Cali-Doe.
0: We had it on so many national shows. America's most wanted Came from Henry Lee Lucas John York interviewed him in 1984 USA Today Oprah Winfrey I can't even tell you the networks this hit we had we had ended up running down over 10,000 leads on this we only ever needed somebody to report her missing that's all we ever needed
2: So, Veronica, what is it about John York, you think, that makes him so central to this story?
1: It's so apparent to me that John York is so passionate about this case and the way he's worked so tirelessly on it for decades is, I think, a testament to how important it was to him and how dedicated he was to this girl and this case and not only finding out who she was, but also finding her killer.
2: What's amazing to me is when you watch the videos as we have of him interviewing Otis Toole and, and Henry Lee Lucas 2 let's face it, dregs of the world, uh, how he he so calmly interacts with them. And you know in his heart he's distrustful of these men. He just really doesn't trust what they're telling him. But he's, he's so calm and all and so insistent on trying to get answers from them if there's anything they can provide as they just sort of calmly sit there and talk about these horrific crimes they've committed.
1: You know, but despite the fact that he worked on this case for so many years, he didn't really give up hope that there would be a break at some point.
2: No, that's what's really fascinating about it in some ways. There's a crime novelist whom I love, Richard Price, and he wrote a book called The Whites. And the Whites are crimes that cops just can't seem to solve. It haunts them, it becomes this weight around their shoulders. And, and, you know, they're just, they spend these nights, sort of sleepless nights because of them. And York, you know, this case was, as you said, so important to him, but it never seemed as if he was just dragged down by it, as if he was suffering from it. He seemed to always have this sort of seed of optimism that one day they'd find an answer.
1: Right. But of course, it wasn't an answer that he was going to end up finding on his own.
2: That's next time on the podcast, Finding Tammy Joe. I'm Gary Craig with The Democrat and Chronicle.
1: And I'm Veronica Volk, WXXI News. If you're listening to this episode on Sunday, we're going to be holding an in-person event on Tuesday, and we want to invite you to come by. We've put together an exhibit with all these old pictures and articles and some other fascinating stuff that really adds another dimension to the story. That will be Tuesday, May 17th, and you can check out the details on our website, findingtammyjo.com. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. And while you're there, give us a review. Or you can let us know what you think by joining the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Tammy Joe. This podcast is produced by WXXI News and The Democrat and Chronicle. Thank you for listening.